This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Thank you for tuning in this week, and welcome back to the show. This week, we're looking at primary care, and none other than Dr. Fraser Pollard, who's a family physician at Trenton Memorial Hospital in Ontario, Canada, joins us today for the show. Fraser, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Kieran. Glad to be back. Well, I'm pretty excited for today's show. Fraser, why don't you introduce the article that you chose to lead us off? So I chose an article from JAMA. It was in February 2017, done by Zhao, and it was looking at uh, migraine prophylaxis and specifically with alternative therapies, and in this case it was acupuncture. So he did a randomized control trial of 249 migraine patients, and it showed there was a significant long-term benefit of therapeutic acupuncture for reducing migraine frequency compared to sham acupuncture and a waiting list control group. That sounds really, really cool. Not only is it a preventative therapy study, it's a non-pharmacologic preventative therapy study. Fraser, why did you choose this article? I mean, as we know, migraines are a really common presentation in medicine in general, but definitely in family medicine. And I see it like as an initial visit, as a follow-up visit for failed acute treatments, and for a follow-up visit for failed prophylactic treatments. So I know that our current prophylactic medications have significant drug side effects and often aren't effective, along with the financial burden of paying for them. So whenever I see an alternative therapy that may have a benefit beyond what I'm already offering, I want to know if it's reasonable for my patients to pursue them. And this article seems to give some insight into that. Yeah, and I think, you know, I also get questions from patients about alternative therapies. And I'm not, you know, admittedly up to date on all the most recent literature around that. So it's nice to see in JAMA Internal Medicine that we're, we're publishing a major trial using these alternative therapies, and that can help give me a strategy to treat my patients. So I look forward to it. Take us through the methods. What did they do? So this is a randomized control trial, and they basically took men and women, but mostly women, given that it's migraines, age 18 to 65, who were having migraines without an aura, and they were having about two to eight of these per month. And they put them in a trial with a couple interventions. And one was therapeutic acupuncture, and the other one was sham acupuncture, which I can explain in a second. And uh, those two were also compared against a waiting list control group. And what that is, is people were told they were eventually going to get acupuncture, but they never did. So tell us what sham acupuncture is. I'm not even sure how you could do it. So let me tell you what therapeutic acupuncture is, and then I'll be able to explain what sham acupuncture is. So how they defined at least therapeutic acupuncture was they had someone who had been working as an acupuncturist for five years. They gave them two specific acupoints they had to use and then they could choose two others. And what they do is they use the sterile needles, put them in these spots, and then they were actually using some radio frequency. And with the therapeutic acupuncture what you're trying to do is get the patient to say they have some soreness numbness a feeling of distension in that area where they're getting the needling and that's you know it's working but with sham acupuncture they do everything the same but they don't wait for the patient to get that soreness or numbness and don't really focus on that patient's response to it so the procedure is the same it's just whether or not you're listening to that patient and whether or not they're getting that effect that lets us know whether or not it's working. And by doing this, the primary outcome they were looking for was to see if they could change the frequency of migraine attacks between whatever their baseline was when they started and 16 weeks after that randomization occurred to either one of those groups. And along with that, they're also looking at how many days people actually had a migraine, 
what the average severity of it was, and how many medications they were intaking per month. Fantastic. Fraser, what did they find? They found that therapeutic acupuncture seems to be effective. So in the therapeutic acupuncture group, they saw the frequency of migraines, and this is the number of episodes per month, reduced by 3.2. In the sham acupuncture group, it reduced by 2.1. And in the waiting list group, it reduced by 1.4. So when you crunch the numbers on that, therapeutic uh, acupuncture had a significantly greater benefit than the sham acupuncture and the waiting list group, but there wasn't a significant difference between the sham acupuncture and the waiting list group. Okay, so translate that into real-world speak for a clinician so they can counsel their patients. What What does this equate to? So you could say to a patient, if you go out and you get therapeutic acupuncture, now this is five times per week for four weeks, there's a chance that you'll reduce your number of attacks by three per month. So if you're having five, you're going to start having only two. And you're going to have about 30 fewer uses of a medication. And in this case, the, the participants were only allowed to use ibuprofen. So they used 30 less tablets of ibuprofen if they got the therapeutic acupuncture compared to the beginning of the trial. Now, the sham acupuncture did have a benefit too. So just participating. So, you know, those people reduced their attacks by two per month. They had three fewer migraine days and 19 fewer uses of ibuprofen. So it's actually a pretty good benefit just at that, but but uh, not compared to what the uh, therapeutic acupuncture showed. Interesting. And what about the timing? Do, do we get an idea of how quickly this benefit can be achieved? Are we talking about, you know, within a month or are you looking over the full 16 weeks when they're looking at their outcomes? It's pretty quick, actually. So since we're looking at the frequency per month, we're getting it in four-week intervals. And after the first four-week interval, you do have a a big decline. So initially in the therapeutic acupuncture group, they're having migraines about five times per month. And then four weeks into that acupuncture, they're having them more around three times per month. Wow. So that's that's pretty impactful. uh, I am encouraged. Anything that you wanted to bring up as far as strengths or weaknesses or limitations of this study that you uh, you thought was important to point out? Yeah, I think for me is <clears throat> they didn't compare it against any established uh, prophylactic medications. So often people I, I see who have migraines are on multiple other medications and I don't want to be adding on another medication. And I don't want to have to say to them, listen, we got to go through the process of giving you a beta blocker trying multiple other medications before I think, yeah, we can go on and and try acupuncture as an option for you. I'd like to have a comparator and say, you know, the chance of my medication working is this, but the benefit from you not going through these medications and just getting acupuncture is this. But you can't really do that with this. You're really stuck with people who are right off the bat refusing medications or have gone through the whole process of trying medications and none has worked. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an important point, Fraser, that you bring up because it's it's hard to then tell somebody should you should you go after acupuncture um, or should you try some of the more established prophylactic medications that we use, beta blockers, triptans, etc. When this this trial didn't examine that and and sort of the population they were studying was already those who had been through medications before. So I really think that's an important point to to bring up, and and thank you for highlighting that. 
Yeah, and I think maybe another point that goes along with, I guess, sort of the external validity of the of, of the trial is that the acupuncturists had a standard protocol they had to use. And my understanding is when you see an acupuncturist in the community, they wouldn't necessarily be following this standard treatment plan that was laid out. So I also don't know how much variability there is between going to a different acupuncturist. Like, I just have no clue at all, really. And maybe there isn't. Maybe it's just the process of going through it and them developing the plan and everybody's pretty reasonable. Or maybe there's a huge variability. Yeah, right. And I think that that speaks to our sort of inexperience as physicians with uh, alternative therapies and and whether, you know, how standardized they are and and our own personal knowledge of how they work. So if you are uh, an acupuncturist listening, please, uh, please do tweet at us and let us know your experience on variability between your colleagues. Anything else that you that you thought we should talk about regards to strengths and limitations, Fraser? No, not really. I think on the balance, this is a pretty strong study. They had outcomes that were well-reported, easy to understand, and easy to relay onto your patients. And I think that there are some take-home points from this that, that are valuable. So before you tell us the take-home points, tell us who the study applies to so our listeners know this is how I counsel this patient when it comes to the evidence around acupuncture and migraine. So really it applies to your typical migraine patient. These are people 18 to 65, mostly women. They have migraines occurring two to eight times per month, but not with aura. And they're not currently on any prophylactic uh, medications. So it actually involves you know a good chunk of your, of your patients who have migraine. Well, at least for me, because a lot of my migraine patients don't stay on their prophylactic medications long term. They go on them and off them and they don't drive the kind of benefit I'm looking for. So there's a lot of people that could benefit from this. Yeah, it sounds like it would be fairly applicable to your practice then as the population they studied had sort of been through the prophylactic medications prior to this and maybe they're looking for something different and you're able to counsel them on this. So tell us the main learning points then that you're going to take away to your practice for our listeners. I think the main point that I'll be passing on to my patients, I mean, there's lots of little things to learn from this, but the main overall piece is that if someone does a four-week regimen of acupuncture, um, it can significantly reduce the frequency of their migraines right at week four, all the way up to about 24 weeks after having it done. So there's a significant benefit there, and this allows me to talk to a patient who's asking about alternative therapies and say, I'm not positive, but... There is some research showing this This may be something that works. Um, it's safe on, on the balance, and I think that it's something that I feel comfortable recommending as an alternative. Sharp as a tack, or sharp as a needle, I should say. Thank you, Fraser. That's a great study for our, our listeners, and I hope listeners out there, you enjoyed uh, listening to Fraser take us through that. Let's transition now and talk about the study that I chose for this week. And as I said, we're talking about things that we hope apply to a primary care setting. And so I looked at the evidence around pregabalin, or Lyrica, as its brand name is known as in North America, for the treatment of acute sciatica. Uh, This was a trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, earlier this year. I'm interested in this article because I see sciatica all the time. What's the bottom line for this article? So this was, like your trial, a placebo-controlled, randomized control trial. It included just over 200 patients who had moderate to severe sciatica, and they treated that with up to 600 milligrams of pregabalin for eight weeks. 
and unfortunately they found no difference at 8 weeks and at 52 weeks in self-reported leg pain intensity, level of disability, a variable number of quality of life measures, and they did find more adverse events related to the pregabalin treatment, so a negative trial in this sense. Oh, well that's not good to hear. I use a lot of Lyrica actually. Um, so do you see sciatica a lot in your practice or why did you choose this article? Um, I do see it occasionally. Often it's a, it might be a, a complaint that a patient has when they're referred for an alternative problem that we address. But occasionally I've seen sciatica that's been refractory to some of the first line therapies. And, you know, a, a colleague is just asking for help and hoping that I might know of some other therapies or have access to other therapies that maybe they don't. But I think overall, I mean, sciatica, it's a very common problem in the population. It's problematic for patients who suffer with it. And it's problematic for physicians who suffer trying to find effective treatments for it. And certainly, I know my experience so far in treating patients has been very variable in their, uh, in their response. Now, pregabalin is and has been proven to be effective in reducing certain types of nerve-related pain. So specifically, post-herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy, there's some good evidence for its efficacy in those conditions. So a reasonable question, why shouldn't it be effective in sciatica, a form of neuropathic pain that's due to inflammation of the nerve root? It seems reasonable. That's what this trial sought out to answer. So what was the overall study design? So fairly straightforward. This is a gold standard, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized control trial. It was for outpatients that were in, uh, in Australia, and they're referred by physicians or physiotherapists who, uh, you know, complain of typical sciatica symptoms. Who are the patients they included in this study? So they included individuals who had moderate to severe sciatica. Sciatica was, you know, a tip, the typical description, unilateral radiating pain in the leg uh, and below the knee with at least one of either dermatomal pain accompanying myotomal weakness a sensory deficit or a diminished reflex, all things that the sciatic nerve would be responsible for. Um, and then they categorized that severity as moderate severe based on a pain scale or if the sciatica resulted in an impairment in one of their activities of daily living that was deemed to be more severe. So as far as the sciatica itself, it had to be present in an individual for at least one week to be randomized into the trial, and it couldn't have persisted for beyond a year. Um, so they're trying to get away from some of the you know more complex chronic pain syndromes uh, in this study. And individuals were excluded if they had serious underlying spinal pathology, you know, cancers, etc. If they were pregnant uh, or they had other neuropathic analgesic treatments, these sort of adjuvant therapies for sciatica. So if they were taking some other medications, they didn't want that to confound things. There's also some concern about serious suicidality that can be induced by pregabalin. It's rare. So if you had major depression or suicidal thoughts, you were excluded from this study. So really they're taking like a typical sciatica patient who's not being actively treated for it. So with regards to the pregabalin, what uh, intervention groups were the patients put into? So in the trial, you received up to nine weeks of consultations with physicians to monitor and adjust your dose. So you were randomized to either receive pregabalin and you started with a dose of 150 milligrams daily and you titrated that dose weekly for three weeks to a maximum of 600 milligrams daily and you could be on that for four subsequent weeks. So that's a seven week total at that point 
and then at seven weeks the dose was gradually decreased over the last week prior to the evaluation of symptoms at the eight-week point. Otherwise, you were randomized to placebo, you know, of an identically appearing pill and titrated in the same way, uh, although it contained no pregabalin. And then in addition to this, patients were free to seek other medical care as they sought, as they wished. So you, you could go see physiotherapists, you could use other non-adjuvant analgesia, so acetaminophen, NSAIDs, even opioids, that was fine. You just couldn't use other neuropathic pain medications. So what was the primary outcome they were looking at? They determined leg pain intensity scores at 8 weeks and then at 52 weeks following treatment. And the primary leg pain intensity score they used was just a 10-point Likert scale. You know, 0, you have no pain, 10, you have the worst pain you can imagine. Um, And they determined that the minimal clinically important difference on this scale was 1.5 points. So if you went from 3.5 down to 2 on your pain rating scale, that was clinically important change in your overall pain rating. And so they used that scale to power their overall study to make sure that they were able to detect that difference in the 200 patients that they studied. The secondary outcomes that they measured were leg pain intensity using a validated scale that's known as the Roland Disability Questionnaire for Sciatica. And if you look at that questionnaire online, it contains typical questions around the type of pain that you might get with sciatica, some of the functional impairments that you might uh, develop as a consequence of having severe leg pain. And then they looked at uh, back pain scores, quality of life assessments, functional assessments, etc. So just sort of a battery of different things uh, to make sure they weren't missing uh, an impact of the treatment. And then I thought the kind of neat, the neatest part of the other thing that they measured was uh, workplace absenteeism um, as well as healthcare utilization. You know, sort of another measure of the impact of that, uh, a, you know, a non-life-threatening disease, but definitely a disease or a condition that can really uh, impact upon somebody's life, uh, both from their quality and their work. So um, what were the main findings of the study? So in the end, they randomized 209 patients to receive either pregabalin or placebo. And at eight weeks, the primary outcome, their pain scores, overall people rated a pain score of 3.7 in pregabalin versus 3.1 in placebo. So you remember that minimally clinical important difference was 1.5 on the pain scale, so this was 0.6 difference. Uh, There was no clinically important difference uh, in pain rating. And and the scores were effectively the same at 52 weeks when they asked uh, the individuals again. In all of those secondary outcomes that I mentioned, there was no differences in any of them. So function, quality of life, work, workplace absenteeism, all the same between placebo and pregabalin. Um, and then when they looked at some of the potential adverse events by taking pregabalin, they found there was a significant difference between the two groups. And the most common adverse event that really drove the whole core of the results was dizziness in the pregabalin group. And 64% of individuals experienced that versus 42% in the placebo group. So big difference between adverse events in the two, uh, two groups. So going through the study, was there any major points that caught your eye? Yeah, so if you, if you pick up the paper yourself, if you're interested to look at it, figure two is, I think, the most interesting, which is the time to the pain reduction. And I think this is why we see no results, no differences in the results. Um, So you see a major reduction in pain in both groups within three to four weeks. Um, And that goes from the average pain score of about five down to three in both arms. Um, And then that 
plateaus out and stays the same up to 52 weeks. So, you know, the natural history of sciatica is one of a waxing and waning pain with these sciatica flares that come and go. And you see that spontaneous resolution of flares in about three quarters of individuals over a three month time period. So I think overall, uh, you know, you're not going to find a lot of difference in a medication that takes a bit of time to work when your pain spontaneously resolves within three to four weeks. So you're saying that you think that trend of dropping from the five down to three is really just the natural course of the disease rather than the medication working. Yeah, because it was the exact same pattern between placebo and pregabalin group. And I think that's just the, and, and it fits with what we know about the natural time uh, uh, pattern of sciatica flares. Yeah, it's interesting because we do know that about sciatica, but, but we still do use medications that take a long time to work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if the door is completely shut on pregabalin for sciatica, and here's why. There's a, a more specific measure of trying to capture neuropathic pain specifically. So that pain that is not dull or aching, but is that truly sort of hot electric shooting, you know, sharp pain that people feel when the nerves are inflamed themselves. So there's this questionnaire you can use that's called Pain Detect Questionnaire that really sort of you know, in a more discreet way, gets at the type of pain that you're having. And if they use that in this trial as well. And it turned out that actually only 30% of the individuals included in the, in the whole trial actually had a neuropathic quality to the pain that they experienced with their sciatica. And we don't know, because the you know, study's not designed to look at that, whether those individuals, those 30% of individuals who actually had, you know, very, very um, clear nerve-related pain uh, actually got any benefit from, this, from the pregabalin or not, because it sort of gets lost in the wash of everybody else. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not completely shut for me. Okay, so we've covered quite a bit of this article, but overall, does this balance out as being a strong article or is there too many weaknesses? No, I think it's. I think it's really hard to screw up a uh, uh, double-blinded randomized control trial when it's done so eloquently, like they did in this study. So overall, it's very well conducted. They they looked for a lot of different ways to measure the impact of sciatica on an individual, and then the potential efficacy of a of a medication on that. I didn't think there was any major limitations. It just it's hard for me to know in a biological sense which patients may have benefited from the Lyrica itself because we didn't actually get a ton of that typical neuropathic pain. But overall, I think if a lot of patients are presenting with, with sciatica type pain and it's not neuropathic pain, we get we learn a lot from this from this article. Okay, for sure. So who does this study apply to then? So, I mean, your typical patient in this study is a 53-year-old woman who comes in, she complains of dermatomal pain and a sciatic distribution. She has a positive straight leg raise test, you know, as one of our, our, our physical exam maneuvers. She's had about two months of pain with moderate level of disability, and that either is affecting her sleep, it's affecting her ability to ambulate, or she has a poor appetite as a consequence of this pain. This is the person who walks into your office, and you can counsel them when it comes to the lack of efficacy, I should say, of pregabalin in this trial. Yeah, so it's definitely somebody that um, both of us would see somewhat frequently. So I'm not sure what you think the main learning point from the article is, 
But for me, it's sort of the opposite of how the trial set out is they were trying to say, you know, does this medication work? But how I'm probably going to use this the end in the end is to my patients who are on multiple medications or where polypharmacy is a big concern, I'm going to be looking for Lyrica on that list and think, does this person actually need this medication based on this new research? And I'm actually pretty happy about it because it's it's a medication I often see on patients' charts and I think, why are you taking this? And if they do tell me it's for sciatica, I, it's definitely something that I would be able to pull off with confidence at this time. And it would probably actually benefit a lot of my patients. Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, I agree with a lot of things you just said. On a population level, pregabalin does not appear effective at relieving symptoms of sciatica. And there is some associated harm that can come with it. And I think, you know, the thing that really I take away from this is that sciatica is a condition that spontaneously remits in three quarters of individuals within a you know, few weeks. So I think the real thing to do from this trial and is to, you know, reinforce our practice of counseling and reassuring patients that the best approach might be just to wait it out or use other, you know, analgesia like Tylenol and NSAIDs if safe and sort of ride it out for a few weeks until the sciatica will resolve on its own. Now, the only thing I would say is it might be reasonable to do a trial of like an N of one trial in an individual patient who has a very neuropathic component to it. You know, this trial doesn't tell us if that's going to be effective or not, but if you're vigilant with that medication and you try it, you know, for a few weeks and it's not working, then I completely agree with you, Fraser, stop it. Um, and certainly there would be ne not necessarily any indication to continue it long term, but just to get them through a flare if they derive benefit. And if they don't, put it on their medical record and stay away from it in the future. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, great. Two fantastic articles for this week. I think it's always nice to cover primary care which is a little outside my comfort zone. And so I'm glad to have you on the show, Fraser, to take us through it. Let's get to my favorite part of the show. As everybody knows, it's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Fraser, what is catching your attention this week? So I saw an article in Scientific American. The article is titled, Put a Bird on It. And basically it's talking about if people customize possessions, it improves their performance. So if you had an athlete that customized their shoes, they would perform better. And it's kind of interesting. It just sort of goes in and going along with talking about sciatica and all these medications for migraines. So many of this stuff is, there's such a big psychological component to it. And when we look at things like placebos, you know, the, you get that same result. So here they just had kids basically drawing pictures of them being good athletes on beer coasters. And then they played a game about flipping the coasters. Um, and they also had kids draw pictures of people holding hands and being not successful athletes and uh, playing the game as well. And the people that drew pictures of themselves performing better actually did better in the study. So you can start drawing pictures of yourself on your stethoscope and making good diagnoses and you'll you'll start to do better, Kieran. Isn't it called uh, Flair, I think, They're in that movie uh, Office Space, uh, I think it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to put Flair on your uh, on your stuff. So I'll put some Flair on my stethoscope, and who knows, maybe my patients will get better care as a consequence. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so I was reading in the New York Times uh, online health uh, and technology website uh, about whether Uber prevents drunken driving um, or not. And... 
ultimately, as you know, you probably see a theme in research, it really depends on the study that you, you read. But a recent study looked at this, and they found in the four boroughs of New York City, they didn't include Staten Island for some reason, there was a 25 to 35% reduction in alcohol-related car accidents since Uber came to town in 2011. Um, and they compared that to other places where ride-hailing companies don't operate. So that's a lot. That's a big reduction. So that's like 40 fewer collisions per month. Now, as any good researcher would know, there's caution between, and you know, there's always difficulty between causation and association or correlation. Um, you never know what other public health interventions might have been introduced at that time as well. So to say that Uber's actually doing this, we're not there yet. But I thought it was pretty interesting to look at the introduction of a new ride-sharing service beyond taxi driving, um, and you see an associated effect of a reduction in, in alcohol-related car crashes. Always different ways to tackle big problems. Yeah, no kidding. That's... All right, Fraser. Well, thanks so much for joining us again and for calling in from Trenton. Be well, and uh, we look forward to joining us uh, next time on the show. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?